4. By 2000, seven years after Eugene's illness, his life had achieved a kind of equilibrium. He went for a walk every morning. He ate what he wanted, sometimes five or six times a day. His wife knew that as long as the television was tuned to the History Channel, Eugene would settle into his plush chair and watch it regardless of whether it was airing reruns or new programs. He couldn't tell the difference. As he got older, however, Eugene's habits started impacting his life in negative ways. He was sedentary, sometimes watching television for hours at a time because he never grew bored with the shows. His physicians became worried about his heart. The doctors told Beverly to keep him on a strict diet of healthy foods. She tried, but it was difficult to influence how frequently he ate or what he consumed. He never recalled her admonitions. Even if the refrigerator was stocked with fruits and vegetables, Eugene would root around until he found the bacon and eggs. That was his routine. And as Eugene aged and his bones became more brittle, The doctors said he needed to be more careful walking around. In his mind, however, Eugene was 20 years younger. He never remembered to step carefully. All my life, I was fascinated by memory, Squire told me. Then I met E.P. and saw how rich life can be even if you can't remember it. The brain has this. Amazing ability to find happiness, even when the memories of it are gone. It's hard to turn that off, though, which ultimately worked against him. Beverly tried to use her understanding of habits to help Eugene avoid problems as he aged. She discovered that she could short circuit some of his worst patterns by inserting new cues. If she didn't keep bacon in the fridge, Eugene wouldn't eat multiple unhealthy breakfasts. When she put a salad next to his chair, he would sometimes pick at it, and as the meal became a habit, he stopped searching the kitchen for treats. His diet gradually improved. Despite these efforts, however, Eugene's health still declined. One spring day, Eugene was watching television when he suddenly shouted. Beverly ran in and saw him clutching his chest. She called an ambulance. At the hospital, they diagnosed a minor heart attack. By then, the pain had passed and Eugene was fighting to get off his gurney. That night, he kept pulling off the monitors attached to his chest so he could roll over and sleep. Alarms would blare and nurses would rush in. They tried to get him to quit fiddling with the sensors by taping the leads in place and telling him they would use restraints if he continued fussing. Nothing worked. He forgot the threats as soon as they were issued. Then his daughter told a nurse to try complimenting him on his willingness to sit still and to repeat the compliment over and over each time she saw him. We wanted to, you know, Get his pride involved, his daughter, Carol Rays, told me. We'd say, Oh, Dad, you're really doing something important for science by keeping these doodads in place. The nurses started to dote on him. He loved it. After a couple of days, he did whatever they asked. Eugene returned home a week later. Then, in the fall of 2008, while walking through his living room, Eugene tripped on a ledge near the fireplace, fell, and broke his hip. At the hospital, Squire and his team worried that he would have panic attacks because he wouldn't know where he was. So they left notes by his bedside explaining what had happened and posted photos of his children on the walls. His wife and kids came every day. Eugene, however, never grew worried. He never asked why he was in the hospital. He seemed at peace with all the uncertainty by that point, said Squire. It had been 15 years since he had lost his memory. It was as if part of his brain knew 
there were some things he would never understand, and was okay with that. Beverly came to the hospital every day. I spent a long time talking to him, she said. I told him that I loved him, and about our kids, and what a good life we had. I pointed to the pictures and talked about how much he was adored. We were married for 57 years, and 42 of those were a real, normal marriage. Sometimes it was hard, because I wanted my old husband back so much. But at least I knew he was happy. A few weeks later, his daughter came to visit. What's the plan? Eugene asked when she arrived. She took him outside in a wheelchair onto the hospital's lawn. It's a beautiful day, Eugene said. Pretty nice weather, huh? She told him about her kids, and they played with a dog. She thought he might be able to come home soon. The sun was going down. She started to get ready to take him inside. Eugene looked at her. I'm lucky to have a daughter like you, he said. She was caught off guard. She couldn't remember the last time he had said something so sweet. I'm lucky that you're my dad she told him. Gosh, it's a beautiful day, he said. What do you think about the weather? That night at one o'clock in the morning, Beverly's phone rang. The doctor said Eugene had suffered a massive heart attack and the staff had done everything possible but hadn't been able to revive him. He was gone. After his death, he would be celebrated by researchers with images of his brain studied in hundreds of labs and medical schools. I know he would have been really proud to know how much he contributed to science, Beverly told me. He told me once, pretty soon after we got married, that he wanted to do something important with his life, something that mattered. And he did. He just never remembered any of it. Chapter 2 The Craving Brain How to Create New Habits 1. One day in the early 1900s, a prominent American executive named Claude C. Hopkins was approached by an old friend with a new business idea. The friend had discovered an amazing product, he explained, that he was convinced would be a hit. It was a toothpaste, a minty, frothy concoction he called Pepsodent. There were some dicey investors involved. One of them had a string of busted land deals. Another, it was rumored, was connected to the mob. But this venture, the friend promised, was going to be huge. If, that is... Hopkins would consent to help design a national promotional campaign. Hopkins at the time was at the top of a booming industry that had hardly existed a few decades earlier. Advertising. Hopkins was the man who had convinced Americans to buy Schlitz beer by boasting that the company cleaned their bottles with live steam while neglecting to mention that every other company used the exact same method. He had seduced millions of women into purchasing palmolive soap by proclaiming that Cleopatra had washed with it, despite the sputtering protests of outraged historians. He had made puffed wheat famous by saying that it was shot from guns until the grains puffed to eight times normal size. He had turned dozens of previously unknown products, Quaker Oats, Goodyear Tires, the Bissell Carpet Sweeper, Van Camp's Pork and Beans, into household names. And in the process, he had made himself so rich that his best-selling autobiography, My Life in Advertising, devoted long passages to the difficulties of spending so much money. However, Claude Hopkins was best known for a series of rules he coined 
explaining how to create new habits among consumers. These rules would transform industries and eventually became conventional wisdom among marketers, educational reformers, public health professionals, politicians, and CEOs. Even today, Hopkins' rules influence everything from how we buy cleaning supplies to the tools governments use for eradicating disease. They are fundamental to creating any new routine. However, when his old friend approached Hopkins about Pepsodent, the ad man expressed only mild interest. It was no secret that the health of Americans' teeth was in steep decline. As the nation had become wealthier, people had started buying larger amounts of sugary, processed foods. When the government started drafting men for World War I, so many recruits had rotting teeth that officials said poor dental hygiene was a national security risk. Yet as Hopkins knew, selling toothpaste was financial suicide. There was already an army of door-to-door salesmen hawking dubious tooth powders and elixirs, most of them going broke. The problem was that hardly anyone bought toothpaste because, despite the nation's dental problems, hardly anyone brushed their teeth. So Hopkins gave his friend's proposal a bit of thought and then declined. He'd stick with soaps and cereals, he said. I did not see a way to educate the laity in technical toothpaste theories, Hopkins explained in his autobiography. The friend, however, was persistent. He came back again and again, appealing to Hopkins' considerable ego, until eventually the ad man gave in. I finally agreed to undertake the campaign if he gave me a six-months option on a block of stock. Hopkins wrote. The friend agreed. It would be the wisest financial decision of Hopkins' life. Within five years of that partnership, Hopkins turned Pepsodent into one of the best-known products on Earth and in the process helped create a toothbrushing habit that moved across America with startling speed. Soon, everyone from Shirley Temple to Clark Gable was bragging about their Pepsodent smile. By 1930, Pepsodent was sold in China, South Africa, Brazil, Germany, and almost anywhere else Hopkins could buy ads. A decade after the first Pepsodent campaign, pollsters found that toothbrushing had become a daily ritual for more than half the American population. Hopkins had helped establish toothbrushing as a daily activity. The secret to his success, Hopkins would later boast, was that he had found a certain kind of cue and reward that fueled a particular habit. It's an alchemy so powerful that even today, the basic principles are still used by consumer goods giants, video game designers, food companies, hospitals, and millions of salesmen around the world. Eugene Pauly taught us about the habit loop, but it was Claude Hopkins that showed how new habits can be cultivated and grown. So what exactly did Hopkins do? He created a craving, and that craving, it turns out, is what makes cues and rewards work. That craving is what powers the habit loop. Throughout his career, one of Claude Hopkins' signature tactics was to find simple triggers to convince consumers to use his products every day. He sold Quaker Oats, for instance, as a breakfast cereal that could provide energy for 24 hours, but only if you ate a bowl every morning. He hawked tonics that cured stomach aches, joint pain, bad skin, and womanly problems. But only if you drank the medicine at symptoms' first appearance. Soon, people were devouring oatmeal at daybreak and chugging from little brown bottles whenever they felt a hint of fatigue or indigestion, which, as luck would have it, often happened at least once a day. To sell Pepsodent, then... 
Hopkins needed a trigger that would justify the toothpaste's daily use. He sat down with a pile of dental textbooks. It was dry reading, he later wrote. But in the middle of one book, I found a reference to the mucin plaques on teeth, which I afterward called the film. That gave me an appealing idea. I resolved to advertise this toothpaste as a creator of beauty, to deal with that cloudy film. In focusing on tooth film, Hopkins was ignoring the fact that this same film has always covered people's teeth and hadn't seemed to bother anyone. The film is a naturally occurring membrane that builds up on teeth regardless of what you eat or how often you brush. People had never paid much attention to it, and there was little reason why they should. You can get rid of the film by eating an apple, running your finger over your teeth, brushing, or vigorously swirling liquid around your mouth. Toothpaste didn't do anything to help remove the film. In fact, one of the leading dental researchers of the time said that all toothpastes, particularly Pepsodent, were worthless. That didn't stop Hopkins from exploiting his discovery. Here, he decided, was a cue that could trigger a habit. Soon, cities were plastered with Pepsodent ads. Just run your tongue across your teeth, read one. You'll feel a film. That's what makes your teeth look off-color and invites decay. Note how many pretty teeth are seen everywhere read another ad featuring smiling beauties. Millions are using a new method of teeth cleansing. Why would any woman have dingy film on her teeth? Pepsodent removes the film. The brilliance of these appeals was that they relied upon a cue, tooth film, that was universal and impossible to ignore. Telling someone to run their tongue across their teeth, it turns out, is likely to cause them to run their tongue across their teeth. And when they did, they were likely to feel a film. Hopkins had found a cue that was simple, had existed for eons, and was so easy to trigger that an advertisement could cause people to comply automatically. Moreover, the reward, as Hopkins envisioned it, was even more enticing. Who, after all, doesn't want to be more beautiful? Who doesn't want a prettier smile? Particularly when all it takes is a quick brush with Pepsodent. After the campaign launched, a quiet week passed. Then two. Then in the third week, demand exploded. There were so many orders for Pepsodent that the company couldn't keep up. In three years, the product went international, and Hopkins was crafting ads in Spanish, German, and Chinese. Within a decade, Pepsodent was one of the top-selling goods in the world. It would remain America's best-selling toothpaste for more than 30 years, earning billions. Before Pepsodent appeared, only 7% of Americans had a tube of toothpaste in their medicine chests. A decade after Hopkins' ad campaign went nationwide, that number had jumped to 65%. By the end of World War II, The military downgraded concerns about recruits' teeth because so many soldiers were brushing every day. I made for myself a million dollars on Pepsodent, Hopkins wrote a few years after the product appeared on shelves. The key, he said, was that he had learned the right human psychology. That psychology was grounded in two basic rules. First, find a simple and obvious cue. Second, clearly define the rewards. If you get those elements right, Hopkins promised, it was like magic. Look at Pepsodent. He had identified a cue, tooth film, and a reward, beautiful teeth, that had persuaded millions to start a daily ritual. Even today, Hopkins' rules are a staple of marketing textbooks and the foundation of millions of ad campaigns. And those same principles have been used to create thousands of other habits, often without people realizing how closely they are hewing to Hopkins' formula. 
Studies of people who have successfully started new exercise routines, for instance, show they are more likely to stick with a workout plan if they choose a specific cue, such as running as soon as they get home from work, and a clear reward, such as a beer or an evening of guilt-free television. Research on dieting says creating new food habits requires a predetermined cue, such as planning menus in advance, and simple rewards for dieters when they stick to their intentions. The time has come when advertising has in some hands reached the status of a science, Hopkins wrote. Advertising, once a gamble, has thus become, under able direction, one of the safest of business ventures. It's quite a boast. However, it turns out that Hopkins' two rules aren't enough. There's also a third rule that must be fulfilled to create a habit, a rule so subtle that Hopkins himself relied on it without knowing it existed. It explains everything, from why it's so hard to ignore a box of donuts to how a morning jog can become a nearly effortless routine. 2. The scientists and marketing executives at Procter & Gamble were gathered around a beat-up table in a small, windowless room, reading the transcript of an interview with a woman who owned nine cats, when one of them finally said what everyone was thinking. If we get fired, what exactly happens? she asked. Do security guards show up and walk us out? or do we get some kind of warning beforehand? The team's leader, a one-time rising star within the company named Drake Stimson, stared at her. I don't know, he said. His hair was a mess. His eyes were tired. I never thought things would get this bad. They told me running this project was a promotion. It was 1996, and the group at the table was finding out, despite Claude Hopkins' assertions, how utterly unscientific the process of selling something could become. They all worked for one of the largest consumer goods firms on earth, the company behind Pringles potato chips, Oil of Olay, Bounty paper towels, CoverGirl cosmetics, Dawn, Downey, and Duracell, as well as dozens of other brands. P&G collected more data than almost any other merchant on earth and relied on complex statistical methods to craft their marketing campaigns. The firm was incredibly good at figuring out how to sell things. In the clothes washing market alone, P&G's products cleaned one out of every two laundry loads in America. Its revenues topped $35 billion per year. However, Stimson's team, which had been entrusted with designing the ad campaign for one of P&G's most promising new products, was on the brink of failure. The company had spent millions of dollars developing a spray that could remove bad smells from almost any fabric, and the researchers in that tiny, windowless room had no idea how to get people to buy it. The spray had been created about three years earlier, when one of P&G's chemists was working with a substance called hydroxypropyl beta-cyclodextrin, or HPBCD, in a laboratory. The chemist was a smoker. His clothes usually smelled like an ashtray. One day after working with HPBCD, his wife greeted him at the door when he got home. Did you quit smoking? she asked him. No, he said. He was suspicious. She had been harassing him to give up cigarettes for years. This seemed like some kind of reverse psychology trickery. You don't smell like smoke is all, she said. The next day, he went back to the lab and started experimenting with HPBCD and various scents. Soon, He had hundreds of vials containing fabrics that smelled like wet dogs, cigars, sweaty socks, Chinese food, musty shirts, and dirty towels. 
When he put HPBCD in water and sprayed it on the samples, the scents were drawn into the chemicals' molecules. After the mist dried, the smell was gone. When the chemist explained his findings to P&G's executives, they were ecstatic. For years, market research had said that consumers were clamoring for something that could get rid of bad smells, not mask them, but eradicate them altogether. When one team of researchers had interviewed customers in their homes, they found that many of them left their blouses or slacks outside after a night at a bar or party. My clothes smell like cigarettes when I get home, but I don't want to pay for dry cleaning every time I go out, one woman said. P&G, sensing an opportunity, launched a top-secret project to turn HPBCD into a viable product. They spent millions perfecting the formula, finally producing a colorless, odorless liquid that could wipe out almost any foul odor. The science behind the spray was so advanced that NASA would eventually use it to clean the interiors of shuttles after they returned from space. The best part was that it was cheap to manufacture, didn't leave stains, and could make any stinky couch, old jacket, or stained car interior smell, well, scentless. The project had been a major gamble, but P&G was now poised to earn billions if they could come up with the right marketing campaign. They decided to call it Febreze and asked Stimson, a 31-year-old wonderkind with a background in math and psychology, to lead the marketing team. Stimson was tall and handsome, with a strong chin, a gentle voice, and a taste for high-end meals. I'd rather my kids smoked weed than ate in McDonald's, he once told a colleague. Before joining P&G, he had spent five years on Wall Street building mathematical models for choosing stocks. When he relocated to Cincinnati, where P&G was headquartered, he was tapped to help run important business lines, including bounce fabric softener and downy dryer sheets. But Febreze was different. It was a chance to launch an entirely new category of product, to add something to a consumer's shopping cart that had never been there before. All Stimson needed to do was figure out how to make Febreze into a habit, and the product would fly off the shelves. How tough could that be? Stimson and his colleagues decided to introduce Febreze in a few test markets, Phoenix, Salt Lake City, and Boise. They flew in and handed out samples, and then asked people if they could come by their homes. Over the course of two months, they visited hundreds of households. Their first big breakthrough came when they visited a park ranger in Phoenix. She was in her late 20s and lived by herself. Her job was to trap animals that wandered out of the desert. She caught coyotes, raccoons, the occasional mountain lion, and skunks. Lots and lots of skunks, which often sprayed her when they were caught. I'm single, and I'd like to find someone to have kids with, the ranger told Stimson and his colleagues while they sat in her living room. I go on a lot of dates. I mean, I think I'm attractive, you know? I'm smart, and I feel like I'm a good catch. But her love life was crippled, she explained, because everything in her life smelled like skunk. Her house, her truck, her clothing, her boots, her hands, her curtains, even her bed. She had tried all sorts of cures. She bought special soaps and shampoos. She burned candles and used expensive carpet shampooing machines. None of it worked. When I'm on a date, I'll get a whiff of something that smells like skunk and I'll start obsessing about it, she told them. I'll start wondering, does he smell it? What if I bring him home and he wants to leave? I went on four dates last year with a really nice guy, a guy I really liked, and I waited forever to invite him to my place. Eventually, he came over 
and I thought everything was going really well. Then the next day, he said he wanted to take a break. He was really polite about it, but I keep wondering, was it the smell? Well, I'm glad you got a chance to try Febreze, Stimson said. How'd you like it? She looked at him. She was crying. I want to thank you, she said. This spray has changed my life. After she had received samples of Febreze, she had gone home and sprayed her couch. She sprayed the curtains, the rug, the bedspread, her jeans, her uniform, the interior of her car. The bottle ran out, so she got another one and sprayed everything else. I've asked all of my friends to come over, the woman said. They can't smell it anymore. The skunk is gone. By now, she was crying so hard that one of Stimson's colleagues was patting her on the shoulder. Thank you so much, the woman said. I feel so free. Thank you. This product is so important. Stimson sniffed the air inside her living room. He couldn't smell anything. We're going to make a fortune with this stuff, he thought. Stimson and his team went back to P&G headquarters and started reviewing the marketing campaign they were about to roll out. The key to selling Febreze, they decided, was conveying that sense of relief the park ranger felt. They had to position Febreze as something that would allow people to rid themselves of embarrassing smells. All of them were familiar with Claude Hopkins' rules, or the modern incarnations that filled business school textbooks. They wanted to keep the ads simple, find an obvious cue, and clearly define the reward. They designed two television commercials. The first showed a woman talking about the smoking section of a restaurant. Whenever she eats there, her jacket smells like smoke. A friend tells her if she uses Febreze, it will eliminate the odor. The cue, the smell of cigarettes. The reward, odor eliminated from clothes. The second ad featured a woman worrying about her dog, Sophie, who always sits on the couch. Sophie will always smell like Sophie, she says. But with Febreze, now my furniture doesn't have to. The cue? Pet smells, which are familiar to the 70 million households with animals. The reward? A house that doesn't smell like a kennel. Stimson and his colleagues began airing the advertisements in 1996 in the same test cities. They gave away samples, put advertisements in mailboxes, and paid grocers to build mountains of Febreze near cash registers. Then they sat back, anticipating how they would spend their bonuses. A week passed, then two, a month, two months. Sales started small and got smaller. Panicked, the company sent researchers into stores to see what was happening. Shelves were filled with Febreze bottles that had never been touched. They started visiting housewives who had received free bottles. Oh, yes, one of them told a P&G researcher. The spray. I remember it. Let's see. The woman got down on her knees in the kitchen and started rooting through the cabinet underneath the sink. I used it for a while, but then I forgot about it. I think it's back here somewhere. She stood up. Maybe it's in the closet. She walked over and pushed aside some brooms. Yes, here it is, in the back. See? It's still almost full. Did you want it back? Febreze was a dud. For Stimson, this was a disaster. Rival executives in other divisions sensed an opportunity in his failure. He heard whispers that some people were lobbying to kill Febreze and get him reassigned to Nikki Clark hair products, the consumer goods equivalent of Siberia. One of P&G's divisional presidents called an emergency meeting and announced they had to cut their losses on Febreze 
before board members started asking questions. Stimson's boss stood up and made an impassioned plea. There's still a chance to turn everything around, he said. At the very least, let's ask the PhDs to figure out what's going on. P&G had recently snapped up scientists from Stanford, Carnegie Mellon, and elsewhere who were supposed experts in consumer psychology. The division's president agreed to give the product a little more time. So a new group of researchers joined Stimson's team and started conducting more interviews. Their first inkling of why Febreze was failing came when they visited a woman's home outside Phoenix. They could smell her nine cats before they went inside. The house's interior, however, was clean and organized. She was somewhat of a neat freak, the woman explained. She vacuumed every day and didn't like to open her windows, since the wind blew in dust. When Stimson and the scientists walked into her living room, where the cats lived, the scent was so overpowering that one of them gagged. What do you do about the cat smell? The scientist asked the woman. It's usually not a problem, she said. How often do you notice a smell? Oh, about once a month, the woman replied. The researchers looked at one another. Do you smell it now? A scientist asked. No, she said. The same pattern played out in dozens of other smelly homes the researchers visited. People couldn't detect most of the bad smells in their lives. If you live with nine cats, you become desensitized to their scent. If you smoke cigarettes, it damages your olfactory capacity so much that you can't smell smoke anymore. Scents are strange. Even the strongest fade with constant exposure. That's why no one was using Febreze, Stimson realized. The product's cue, the thing that was supposed to trigger daily use, was hidden from the people who needed it most. Bad scents simply weren't noticed frequently enough to trigger a regular habit. As a result, Febreze ended up in the back of a closet. The people with the greatest proclivity to use the spray never smelled the odors that should have reminded them the living room needed a spritz. Stimson's team went back to headquarters and gathered in the windowless conference room, rereading the transcript of the woman with nine cats. The psychologist asked what happens if you get fired. Stimson put his head in his hands. If he couldn't sell Febreze to a woman with nine cats, he wondered, who could he sell it to? How do you build a new habit when there's no cue to trigger usage? And when the consumers who most need it don't appreciate the reward? 3. The laboratory belonging to Wolfram Schultz, a professor of neuroscience at the University of Cambridge, is not a pretty place. His desk has been alternately described by colleagues as a black hole where documents are lost forever and a petri dish where organisms can grow undisturbed and in wild proliferation for years. When Schultz needs to clean something, which is uncommon, he doesn't use sprays or cleansers. He wets a paper towel and wipes hard. If his clothes smell like smoke or cat hair, he doesn't notice or care. However, the experiments that Schultz has conducted over the past 20 years have revolutionized our understanding of how cues, rewards, and habits interact. He has explained why some cues and rewards have more power than others and has provided a scientific roadmap that explains why Pepsodent was a hit, how some dieters and exercise buffs managed to change their habits so quickly, and in the end, what it took to make Febreze sell. In the 1980s, Schultz was part of a group of scientists studying the brains of monkeys as they learned to perform certain tasks, such as pulling on levers or opening clasps. Their goal was to figure out which parts of the brain were responsible for new actions. 
One day I noticed this thing that is interesting to me, Schultz told me. He was born in Germany, and now when he speaks English, sounds a bit like Arnold Schwarzenegger if the Terminator were a member of the Royal Society. A few of the monkeys we watched loved apple juice, and the other monkeys loved grape juice. And so I began to wonder, what is going on inside those little monkey heads? Why do different rewards affect the brain in different ways? Schultz began a series of experiments to decipher how rewards work on a neurochemical level. As technology progressed, he gained access in the 1990s to devices similar to those used by the researchers at MIT. Rather than rats, however, Schultz was interested in monkeys like Julio, an eight-pound macaque with hazel eyes who had a very thin electrode inserted into his brain that allowed Schultz to observe neuronal activity as it occurred. One day, Schultz positioned Julio on a chair in a dimly lit room and turned on a computer monitor. Julio's job was to touch a lever whenever colored shapes, small yellow spirals, red squiggles, blue lines, appeared on the screen. If Julio touched the lever when a shape appeared, a drop of blackberry juice would run down a tube hanging from the ceiling and onto the monkey's lips. Julio liked blackberry juice. At first, Julio was only mildly interested in what was happening on the screen. He spent most of his time trying to squirm out of the chair. But once the first dose of juice arrived, Julio became very focused on the monitor. As the monkey came to understand, through dozens of repetitions, that the shapes on the screen were a cue for a routine, touched the lever, that resulted in a reward, blackberry juice, he started staring at the screen with a laser-like intensity. He didn't squirm. When a yellow squiggle appeared, he went for the lever. When a blue line flashed, he pounced. And when the juice arrived, Julio would lick his lips contentedly. As Schultz monitored the activity within Julio's brain, he saw a pattern emerge. Whenever Julio received his reward, his brain activity would spike in a manner that suggested he was experiencing happiness. A transcript of that neurological activity shows what it looks like when a monkey's brain says, in essence, I got a reward. Schultz took Julio through the same experiment again and again, recording the neurological response each time. Whenever Julio received his juice, the I got a reward pattern appeared on the computer attached to the probe in the monkey's head. Gradually, from a neurological perspective, Julio's behavior became a habit. What was most interesting to Schultz, however, was how things changed as the experiment proceeded. As the monkey became more and more practiced at the behavior, as the habit became stronger and stronger, Julio's brain began anticipating the blackberry juice. Schultz's probe started recording the I got a reward pattern the instant Julio saw the shapes on the screen before the juice arrived. In other words, the shapes on the monitor had become a cue not just for pulling a lever, but also for a pleasure response inside the monkey's brain. Julio started expecting his reward as soon as he saw the yellow spirals and red squiggles. Then Schultz adjusted the experiment. Previously, Julio had received juice as soon as he touched the lever. Now, sometimes the juice didn't arrive at all, even if Julio performed correctly. Or it would arrive after a slight delay. Or it would be watered down until it was only half as sweet. When the juice didn't arrive or was late or diluted, Julio would get angry and make unhappy noises or become mopey. And within Julio's brain, Schultz watched a new pattern emerge. Craving. When Julio anticipated juice but didn't receive it, 
a neurological pattern associated with desire and frustration erupted inside his skull. When Julio saw the cue, he started anticipating a juice-fueled joy. But if the juice didn't arrive, that joy became a craving that, if unsatisfied, drove Julio to anger or depression. Researchers in other labs have found similar patterns. Other monkeys were trained to anticipate juice whenever they saw a shape on a screen. Then researchers tried to distract them. They opened the lab's door so the monkeys could go outside and play with their friends. They put food in a corner so the monkeys could eat if they abandoned the experiment. For those monkeys who hadn't developed a strong habit, the distractions worked. They slid out of their chairs, left the room, and never looked back. They hadn't learned to crave the juice. However, once a monkey had developed a habit, once its brain anticipated the reward, the distractions held no allure. The animal would sit there, watching the monitor and pressing the lever over and over again, regardless of the offer of food or the opportunity to go outside. The anticipation and sense of craving was so overwhelming that the monkeys stayed glued to their screens, the same way a gambler will play slots long after he's lost his winnings. This explains why habits are so powerful. They create neurological cravings. Most of the time, these cravings emerge so gradually that we're not really aware they exist, so we're often blind to their influence. But as we associate cues with certain rewards, a subconscious craving emerges in our brains that starts the habit loop spinning. One researcher at Cornell, for instance, found how powerfully food and scent cravings can affect behavior when he noticed how Cinnabon stores were positioned inside shopping malls. Most food sellers locate their kiosks in food courts, but Cinnabon tries to locate their stores away from other food stalls. Why? Because Cinnabon executives want the smell of cinnamon rolls to waft down hallways and around corners uninterrupted so that shoppers will start subconsciously craving a roll. By the time a consumer turns a corner and sees the Cinnabon store, that craving is a roaring monster inside his head and he'll reach unthinkingly for his wallet. The habit loop is spinning because a sense of craving has emerged. There is nothing programmed into our brains that makes us see a box of donuts and automatically want a sugary treat, Schultz told me. But once our brain learns that a donut box contains yummy sugar and other carbohydrates, it will start anticipating the sugar high. Our brains will push us toward the box. Then, if we don't eat the donut, we'll feel disappointed. To understand this process, consider how Julio's habit emerged. First, he saw a shape on the screen. Over time, Julio learned that the appearance of the shape meant it was time to execute a routine. So, he touched the lever. As a result, Julio received a drop of blackberry juice. That's basic learning. The habit only emerges once Julio begins craving the juice when he sees the cue. Once that craving exists, Julio will act automatically. He'll follow the habit. This is how new habits are created. By putting together a cue, a routine, and a reward, and then cultivating a craving that drives the loop. Take, for instance, smoking. When a smoker sees a cue, say a pack of Marlboros, her brain starts anticipating a hit of nicotine. Just the sight of cigarettes is enough for the brain to crave a nicotine rush. If it doesn't arrive, the craving grows until the smoker reaches unthinkingly for a smoke. Or take email. 
When a computer chimes or a smartphone vibrates with a new message, the brain starts anticipating the momentary distraction that opening an email provides. That expectation, if unsatisfied, can build until a meeting is filled with antsy executives checking their buzzing blackberries under the table, even if they know it's probably only their latest fantasy football results. On the other hand, if someone disables the buzzing and thus removes the cue, people can work for hours without thinking to check their inboxes. Scientists have studied the brains of alcoholics, smokers, and overeaters and have measured how their neurology, the structures of their brains and the flow of neurochemicals inside their skulls, changes as their cravings become ingrained. Particularly strong habits, wrote two researchers at the University of Michigan, produce addiction-like reactions so that wanting evolves into obsessive craving that can force our brains into autopilot, even in the face of strong disincentives, including loss of reputation, job, home, and family. However, these cravings don't have complete authority over us. As the next chapter explains, there are mechanisms that can help us ignore the temptations. But to overpower the habit, we must recognize which craving is driving the behavior. If we're not conscious of the anticipation, then we're like the shoppers who wander as if drawn by an unseen force into Cinnabon. To understand the power of cravings in creating habits, consider how exercise habits emerge. In 2002, researchers at New Mexico State University wanted to understand why people habitually exercise. They studied 266 individuals, most of whom worked out at least three times a week. What they found was that many of them had started running or lifting weights almost on a whim or because they suddenly had free time or wanted to deal with unexpected stresses in their lives. However, the reason they continued, why it became a habit, was because of a specific reward they started to crave. In one group, 92% of people said they habitually exercised because it made them feel good. They grew to expect and crave the endorphins and other neurochemicals a workout provided. In another group, 67% of people said that working out gave them a sense of accomplishment. They had come to crave a regular sense of triumph from tracking their performances. And that self-reward was enough to make the physical activity into a habit. If you want to start running each morning, it's essential that you choose a simple cue, like always lacing up your sneakers before breakfast or leaving your running clothes next to your bed, and a clear reward as a midday treat, a sense of accomplishment from recording your miles or the endorphin rush you get from a jog. But countless studies have shown that a cue and a reward on their own aren't enough for a new habit to last. Only when your brain starts expecting the reward, craving the endorphins or sense of accomplishment, will it become automatic to lace up your jogging shoes each morning. The cue, in addition to triggering a routine, must also trigger a craving for the reward to come. Let me ask you about a problem I have, I said to Wolfram Schultz, the neuroscientist, after he explained to me how craving emerges. I have a two-year-old, and when I'm home feeding him dinner, chicken nuggets and stuff like that, I'll reach over and eat one myself without thinking about it. It's a habit, and now I'm gaining weight. Everybody does that, Schultz said. He has three children of his own, all adults now. When they were young, he would pick at their dinners unthinkingly. In some ways, he told me, we're like the monkeys. When we see the chicken or fries on the table, our brains begin anticipating that food, even if we're not hungry. Our brains are craving them. <laughs>
Frankly, I don't even like this kind of food, but suddenly it's hard to fight this urge. And as soon as I eat it, I feel this rush of pleasure as the craving is satisfied. It's humiliating, but that's how habits work. I guess I should be thankful, he said, because the same process has let me create good habits. I work hard because I expect pride from a discovery. I exercise because I expect feeling good afterward. I just wish I could pick and choose better. 4. After their disastrous interview with the Catwoman, Drake Stimson's team at P&G started looking outside the usual channels for help. They began reading up on experiments such as those conducted by Wolfram Schultz. They asked a Harvard Business School professor to conduct psychological tests of Febreze's ad campaigns. They interviewed customer after customer, looking for something that would give them a clue as to how to make Febreze a regular part of consumers' lives. One day, they went to speak with a woman in a suburb near Scottsdale. She was in her 40s with four kids. Her house was clean but not compulsively tidy. To the surprise of the researchers, she loved Febreze. I use it every day, she told them. You do? Stimson said. The house didn't seem like the kind of place with smelly problems. There weren't any pets. No one smoked. How? What smells are you trying to get rid of? I don't really use it for specific smells, the woman said. I mean, you know, I've got boys. They're going through puberty, and if I don't clean their rooms, it smells like a lacquer. But I don't really use it that way. I use it for normal cleaning, a couple of sprays when I'm done in a room. It's a nice way to make everything smell good as a final touch. They asked if they could watch her clean the house. In the bedroom, she made her bed, plumped the pillows, tightened the sheet's corners, and then took a Febreze bottle and sprayed the unwrinkled comforter. In the living room, she vacuumed, picked up the kid's shoes, straightened the coffee table, and sprayed Febreze on the freshly cleaned carpet. It's nice, you know, she said. Spraying feels like a little mini celebration when I'm done with the room. At the rate she was using Febreze, Stimson estimated, she would empty a bottle every two weeks. P&G had collected thousands of hours of videotapes of people cleaning their homes over the years. When the researchers got back to Cincinnati, some of them spent an evening looking through the tapes. The next morning, one of the scientists asked the entire Febreze team to join him in the conference room. He queued up the tape of one woman, a 26-year-old with three children, making a bed. She smoothed the sheets and adjusted a pillow. Then she smiled and left the room. Did you see that? The researcher asked excitedly. He put on another clip. A younger brunette woman spread out a colorful bedspread, straightened a pillow, and then smiled at her handiwork. There it is again, the researcher said. The next clip showed a woman in workout clothes tidying her kitchen and wiping the counter before easing into a relaxing stretch. The researcher looked at his colleagues. Do you see it? He asked. Each of them is doing something relaxing or happy when they finish cleaning, he said. We can build off that. What if Febreze was something that happened at the end of the cleaning routine? rather than the beginning. What if it was the fun part of making something cleaner? Stimson's team ran one more test. Previously, the product's advertising had focused on eliminating bad smells. The company printed up new labels that showed open windows and gusts of fresh air. More perfume was added to the recipe so that instead of merely neutralizing odors, Febreze had its own distinct scent. 
Television commercials were filmed of women spraying freshly made beds and spritzing just laundered clothing. The tagline had been, Gets bad smells out of fabrics. It was rewritten as, Cleans life's smells. Each change was designed to appeal to a specific daily cue. Cleaning a room, making a bed, vacuuming a rug. In each one, Febreze was positioned as the reward, the nice smell that occurs at the end of a cleaning routine. Most important, each ad was calibrated to elicit a craving, that things will smell as nice as they look when the cleaning ritual is done. The irony is that a product manufactured to destroy odors was transformed into the opposite. Instead of eliminating scents on dirty fabrics, it became an air freshener used as the finishing touch once things are already clean. When the researchers went back into consumers' homes after the new ads aired and the redesigned bottles were given away, they found that some housewives in the test market had started expecting, craving, the Febreze scent. One woman said that when her bottle ran dry, she squirted diluted perfume on her laundry. If I don't smell something nice at the end, it doesn't really seem clean now, she told them. The park ranger with a skunk problem sent us in the wrong direction, Stimson told me. She made us think that Febreze would succeed by providing a solution to a problem. But who wants to admit their house stinks? We were looking at it all wrong. No one craves scentlessness. On the other hand, lots of people crave a nice smell after they've spent 30 minutes cleaning. The Febreze relaunch took place in the summer of 1998. Within two months, sales doubled. Within a year, customers had spent more than $230 million on the product. Since then, Febreze has spawned dozens of spin-offs, air fresheners, candles, laundry detergents, and kitchen sprays that all told now account for sales of more than $1 billion per year. Eventually, P&G began mentioning to customers that, in addition to smelling good, Febreze can also kill bad odors. Stimson was promoted, and his team received their bonuses. The formula had worked. They had found simple and obvious cues. They had clearly defined the reward. But only once they created a sense of craving, the desire to make everything smell as nice as it looked, did Febreze become a hit. That craving is an essential part of the formula for creating new habits that Claude Hopkins, the Pepsodent ad man, never recognized. Since Squire's first paper on Eugene's habits was published, the science of habit formation has exploded into a major field of study. Researchers at Duke, Harvard, UCLA, Yale, USC, Princeton, the University of Pennsylvania, and at schools in the United Kingdom, Germany, and the Netherlands, as well as corporate scientists working for Procter & Gamble, Microsoft, Google, and hundreds of other companies are focused on understanding the neurology and psychology of habits, their strengths and weaknesses, and why they emerge and how they can be changed. Researchers have learned that cues can be almost anything, from a visual trigger such as a candy bar or a television commercial, to a certain place, a time of day, an emotion, a sequence of thoughts, or the company of particular people. Routines can be incredibly complex or fantastically simple. Some habits, such as those related to emotions, are measured in milliseconds. Rewards can range from food or drugs that cause physical sensations to emotional payoffs, such as the feelings of pride that accompany praise or self-congratulation. And in almost every experiment, researchers have seen echoes of Squire's discoveries with Eugene. 
Habits are powerful but delicate. They can emerge outside our consciousness or can be deliberately designed. They often occur without our permission, but can be reshaped by fiddling with their parts. They shape our lives far more than we realize. They are so strong, in fact, that they cause our brains to cling to them at the exclusion of all else, including common sense. In one set of experiments, for example, researchers affiliated with the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism trained mice to press levers in response to certain cues until the behavior became a habit. The mice were always rewarded with food. Then, the scientists poisoned the food so that it made the animals violently ill or electrified the floor so that when the mice walked toward their reward, they received a shock. The mice knew the food and cage were dangerous. When they were offered the poisoned pellets in a bowl or saw the electrified floor panels, they stayed away. When they saw their old cues, however, they unthinkingly pressed the lever and ate the food, or they walked across the floor, even as they vomited or jumped from the electricity. The habit was so ingrained, the mice couldn't stop themselves. It's not hard to find an analog in the human world. Consider fast food, for instance. It makes sense when the kids are starving and you're driving home after a long day, to stop just this once at McDonald's or Burger King. The meals are inexpensive. It tastes so good. After all, one dose of processed meat, salty fries, and sugary soda poses a relatively small health risk, right? It's not like you do it all the time. But habits emerge without our permission. Studies indicate that families usually don't intend to eat fast food on a regular basis. What happens is that a once-a-month pattern slowly becomes once a week and then twice a week, as the cues and rewards create a habit, until the kids are consuming an unhealthy amount of hamburgers and fries. When researchers at the University of North Texas and Yale tried to understand why families gradually increased their fast food consumption, they found a series of cues and rewards that most customers never knew were influencing their behaviors. They discovered the habit loop. Every McDonald's, for instance, looks the same. The company deliberately tries to standardize stores' architecture and what employees say to customers so everything is a consistent cue to trigger purchasing routines. The foods at some chains are specifically engineered to deliver immediate rewards. The fries, for instance, are designed to begin disintegrating the moment they hit your tongue in order to deliver a hit of salt and grease as fast as possible, causing your pleasure centers to light up and your brain to lock in the pattern. All the better for tightening the habit loop. However, even these habits are delicate. When a fast food restaurant closes down, the families that previously ate there will often start having dinner at home rather than seek out an alternative location. Even small shifts can end the pattern. But since we often don't recognize these habit loops as they grow, we are blind to our ability to control them. By learning to observe the cues and rewards, though, we can change the routines.